Welcome to Capital Locust, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Talking local globally. This podcast explores ideas and thinking about the role of local government finance as an accelerator of international development in line with the Sustainable Development Goals and Paris Agreement. Welcome to the 10th episode of Capital Lowcast and the last episode of our first season. In this episode, we'll be talking to Emilia Sayas. Emilia is Secretary General of United Cities and Local Governments World Secretariat. She has worked with the international movement of local and regional governments in different capacities since 1997 leading programs and initiatives on institutional capacity building, the participation of women in local decision-making, and decentralized cooperation. Emilia played a critical role in setting up the global task force of local and regional governments and has followed and represented local and regional governments in iconic international processes such as the Rio and Beijing 20 plus, as well as the climate agreement negotiations, the sustainable development goals, Habitat 3, and has facilitated contributions from local constituencies to the United Nations process. But I think fundamentally to sum all this up, Amelia has really played a catalytic role, an ice-breaking role, a path-breaking role in bringing local governments to the global stage as a pillar of the global community. And for this reason, we have joined with United Cities and Local Governments in this global coalition for a financial ecosystem that works for cities and local governments, recognizing, as Amelia does, that the global system it works well for nation states. It's designed around nation states. I'm speaking to you from the United Nations, which is a club of nation states. The global system also works very well for big business, banks, large corporations. Um, where are local governments in the global system? Yet local governments are the entities that actually deliver most of the features of our daily lives. We'll be talking to Emilia about this and more, how local governments can become a bigger part of the global development agenda. Okay, well, Emilia Sayers, Secretary General of United Cities and Local Government, thank you so much for being a guest on this Capital Lowcast. And also thank you so much for our partnership, our coalition for a global financial ecosystem that works for cities and local governments. Uh, later on, we'll talk a little bit about that ecosystem and how we want to build it. But first, I'd like to ask you, could you explain to me how you ended up as Secretary General of United Cities and Local Governments and why local governments are so important to you? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity, David. Always a pleasure to uh, spend some time thinking about how to uh, to influence our future and how to to transform the world towards a sustainability model. And to be honest with you, this is very objective that I know you and I share, and our organizations uh, share are the very reason why I am the Secretary General of United Cities and Local Governments. 
I started my professional career in an embassy, in the embassy of Bolivia to the Netherlands. And I was finalizing my thesis in international law and European studies. And I came across at the same time as I was working in that embassy, so dealing with the national perspective of diplomacy, I came across this notion of acquis communitaire and local self-government, which is a notion that the European Union was building its cohesion policy around. And I started to explore what it meant, and I came across this incredible movement, which was the International Municipal Movement, that was holding one of its congresses in The Hague in 1995. And there is where I came to realize uh, the aspirations that local governments had and the influence that strong, accountable institutions at local level could have in how to shape our economies, how to construct uh, uh, regional uh, cohesion, and how to shape uh, international policy making. I became really interested, and in 1998, I was offered the opportunity, so a couple of years later, offered the opportunity to actually go and work with one of the founding organizations of what we know today as United Cities and Local Governments. And ever since, I have been working in different departments and different aspects of, of this work, from program implementation to uh, governance affairs, and now as Secretary General. So that has been the transition. But I have to say that it has been a very yeah, organic and fluid uh, transition that has always been linked with my eagerness to influence how we shape uh, the way we live. Thank you so much indeed, Amelia. That's that's fascinating. And one thing that has struck me when attending here at the UN uh, meetings uh, between nation states, meetings between governments, and then also attending uh, meetings between mayors, if you like, or meetings between local government representatives in different fora, there is a huge difference in the atmosphere and even in the politics of those meetings. When countries are meeting each other as countries you know there there is the backdrop of the global geopolitical situation and many issues are sensitive cannot be touched etc when mayors meet uh, as mayors all of the um north south east west you know continental divides uh, wealth divides seem to evaporate and people just get down and talk about the daily lives of their citizens. I mean, I wonder if you'd like to elaborate on that. I mean, you have spent a lot of time trying to bring yeah. the cities to the intergovernmental conferences. And uh, would right. you like to kind of dis discuss that issue a little bit from your perspective? Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I feel that as well. And that's what, for me, is kind of addictive in our movement, is this... Um, is the level of engagement that political leaders have at that very local level. And the difference in that atmosphere that you describe between those national gatherings, which are extremely important, eh? and I am a true believer of the multilateral system, so I find it very useful. And our action internationally is that while nations and states are busy 
with a, an almost uh, crisis-driven diplomacy. The kind of international action that we try to drive from a local and regional perspective is a much more transformative type of diplomacy. So we try to come together because we are trying to change the way we address certain problems. The tasks that national governments need to fulfill and the issues that they need to address internationally are very often linked with certain sovereign interests that they need to defend. And I am not underestimating how important it is that those sovereign interests are defended somehow, but the departure point is extremely different. National governments often look at challenges that we face as societies from a very statistical perspective and a very abstract perspective, while local leaders are looking at, at the problems of neighbors, of people. And that changes the discussion drastically. And this is what we face when we discuss issues such as migration. Because for, for cities, whether they have the capacity or not, whether they have the competences or not, whether they are equipped or not, they need to address needs of people, of families that are going to end up uh, sleeping in their streets or having to send children to school or being taken care of in a doctor's office. And so that really influences the way we look at the discussion. And I think there has come a time in the international discussion where we have all come to realize that the development agenda is a universal one, is one that is shared by the North and the South and the East and the West, as you were describing. That is probably the new social contract that we could develop within the 2030 agenda. And that also implies that we would need to approach that development from a much more community-based driven development. And I think that's where the sphere of government that we represent as a constituency play a very significant role. And that's why also we are trying to, to change the paradigm from act local and think global to think local, see what you need, what are the expectations, what are the dreams of the citizens, and then let us see how we can shape it all together. So it will also imply a little bit of a shift in how we organize our global governance. I'm not saying that I want to uh, substitute or totally erase the role of national governments. Eh? Understand me well. But I think the configuration of our multilateral system might need to be adapted a little bit to this new, um, uh, how, how would I call it? I think it's a new globalization is a new version of globalization. It's really globalization 2.0, you know, version. Yes, that's extremely interesting. And of course, you know, you were working at the coalface, at the cutting edge of this issue, because you, and you through United States and local government, uh, interface with this nation-state-based world, this Westphalian world in which the country, the member state of the UN, is the organizing unit and yet, as you quite rightly point out, um, a lot of the challenges of the world, climate change being one of them, 
maybe the nation state is not the best organizing unit and there are other ways that one can address these problems in a more practical way that are transformative and not driven by kind of certain crises or sovereign interests and yet the, the world is structured in the in uh, through nations currently so we'll come on to that in a moment and particularly how that relates to the financing and the financing of global challenges such as climate change adaptation and women's economic empowerment and others but before we get there i'd like you to maybe just explain to the listener what is uclg how does it work uh etc over to you amelia so United Cities and Local Governments is the inheritor of a 100-year-old movement. It was the, the first uh, conference of our movement took place in 1913 uh, in Belgium, in the city of Ghent. And they came together under a congress that aimed at exploring new ways to create community life. Imagine, back then, before the Great Wars, you already had cities that were starting to realize that the challenges that they were going to face to service their communities were too large to address on their own. I'm talking before the Great War, all right? Before we even started to think about the League of Nations, this movement, this movement already started to take shape. Um, after the Second World War, our movement started to play a very important role in overcoming the differences between the different countries and uh, started to promote uh, training between cities. As you know, the training concept was extremely important in Europe to reconstruct cohesion, and it expanded to other parts of the world, Latin America, Africa and slowly in, in, in Asia Pacific. And we uh, started to shape global associations that uh, were built around the National Association of Local Governments. Um, after the second Habitat Conference in Istanbul, all these different associations that, that had a global scope came together and decided to uh, unify their voice and the current United Cities and local governments in the current shape was created, inheriting all of the membership of these other reorganizations. We have a very decentralized structure with sections all over the world. We are a network of networks with local government associations nationally playing a very strong role and including also direct membership of cities that want to play a pioneering role. Uh, we are a membership-based organization, and our membership is as large as 250,000 uh, local and regional governments of all sizes and types around the planet. So that's a little bit the short version of what we are. Okay, very clear. So that must be a real task you know, finding the co a common denominator amongst such an enormous variety of local governments uh, all over the world and uh, their associations. The common denominator, David, is very easy. In fact, it's the aspiration of all of these local and regional governments to have a capacity to deliver service provision for better livelihood. And you would be amazed how much they all have in common. Of course, they are all departing from some different realities, but at the end of the day, they all need more resources, both human and financial, 
they all need more competencies. So the way that uh, governance structures are organized are always a, a very big discussion. They always, all of them, need sound ways to communicate with the communities and to let communities co-create and participate in decision-making. And they all need new technical solutions. So actually, there is much more in common than one might think at first sight. Yes, and I guess that speaks to the earlier point about uh, how when they meet, uh, they get down to the brass tacks and start discussing concrete issues and how to resolve them because yeah. because of those features. And that brings me back to you know an interesting point that you just mentioned that the in if you like the city to city cooperation, the international cooperation between cities predates the League of Nations and predates the current United Nations and. Another thing that we discussed in another episode is the way that um, also public finance came before the nations. I mean, the you know there was a earlier periods in human history, the first kind of public financial management was at the level of the city and the city state, mm -hmm. and uh, where you you might have had countries, they were basically broad uh, alliances and, and using a kind of feudal system. Uh, but when it came to real public financial management, it was the city of Venice or the city of Beijing that actually managed public finances in such a way. And at the level of the nation state, it was much more about occasionally fighting wars and uh, paying tribute to whoever was the sovereign uh, of that country, but not about the actual concrete delivery of public services. They were always mm -hmm. delivered locally. So given that, given that historically, you know, the delivery of public services and the um, provision of public infrastructure has been a local thing, and then it migrated gradually to the situation we have today, where in many places, you know, the central government, the, the nation state or the, the country is really uh, holding those financial keys. What we are seeing now is uh, with, particularly with the climate crisis, but other crises too, that unless we can have a local government finance pillar to the international financial system, we won't be able to meet these, these huge global challenges. I mean, how can cities build the resilient infrastructure they need? And how can we face this urbanization challenge in Africa without recreating that local government pillar to the global financial ecosystem? I think that the place where we go wrong in this discussion is possibly that because of the way that the global economy has been evolving and because we have been actually paying attention to only one type of, of global e economy, um, we have forgotten a little bit uh, how critical the public service delivery was in development. And we have expected that if we kept the, the economy growing at national, regional, and global level, that we could guarantee uh, greater development. Uh, what, what history proves to us is that growth does, does not always imply development, that inequality has become really, really important, and that our only way to ensure um, broad development is through maintaining uh, the protections of the commons and the public service delivery 
attending those parts of the population that might not be attractive for the economy of the market that we are paying attention um, to to um, to service. And so I think um, we haven't been able to put public service delivery in the right place of the international debate. And I think that is exactly what the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, have allowed us to do. They have become a kind of a common language, a code that we all understand that are very easy to link with a specific service that are delivered also at local level and that demonstrate that the percentage of financing that we need at the local level specifically is different from the one that we are applying now. Um, if you take into account that over 65% of the targets that are uh, to be found under the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, have to do with local action, and in most cases with local service delivery, then you ask yourself, how is it then still possible that you have countries where um, the fiscal transfers to the local level are below the 5%, and that all in the planet there is, there is around um, 19, we don't even reach the 19% fiscal transfer to the local level. How is that possible with the services that they need to deliver is over 65% to reach a minimum, a minimum development? So I think that's where we're going wrong. And I, and I think this is an argument that we local actors have also not been able to, to transmit well that the discussion on economic development was held from a very macroeconomic perspective. And if you hold it in that way, and as you know, in the discussions that we have been having with financial institutions, the financial institutions keep saying to us, there is enough money in the world. That they, it's not ended up in the, in the right place. So I am hoping that the work that we are doing together places it at the right level of discussion and that service delivery becomes the center of that discussion, also linked to finances. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the fiscal transfers that all local governments need, and it's also the access to the capital markets, which is the other area yeah. that we're working on together. But I'd like to come back to the the political economy of this. So, you know, I mean, it's when one talks to ministries of finance or, or central banks sometimes, it's as if... It's sometimes to them as if transferring national fiscal resources to local governments is somehow throwing the money away or you're throwing the money outside the country, whereas those local governments are actually governing the territories that produce that income in the first place. They are part and parcel of the nation. And so it's how we can achieve this paradigm shift. I feel that sometimes ministers of finance and central bank governors get this point. They get it that local governments are the cells, if you like, that make up the nation. And so really, when one recycles fiscal resources, it's healthy circulation of blood throughout the system, so to speak. But others yeah. somehow don't see it like that. And I wonder through your advocacy, you know, what, what are the arguments that you use to really open up the minds of presidents in some cases, prime ministers, 
and uh, officials at the senior level to see local government as a key part of their national development uh, rather than as rivals or entities to be ignored. Uh, uh, over to you, uh, Emilia. A very uh, clear reflection of how much national governments do not see territories and local governments as part of their own system is the fact that before the United Nations, local governments are accredited as NGOs, as non-governmental organizations. That's how deeply rooted that notion is. At national level, there is, there is a, an issue of, in the best of cases, they see them as implementers of the national government. There is a significant change of the conversation that needs to take place. But if you ask me, what is your strategy? I need to go back to the one that I told you before. I think the, the, the more abstract notion that we are part of the system, we are an sphere of government, and we are uh, you know, I mean, we, we are facilitating the whole system that, to work because we are part and parcel of it. Um, well, it hasn't really helped us <laughs> to advance the case in the past decades. I mean, we've made progress, and the progress that we have made is that the state of decentralization in the different parts of the world is might much, much greater than 20 years ago when I started to work with the municipal movement. So I'm not saying that there hasn't been any progress, but the progress has not been significant enough and it has certainly not helped the case in the international sphere. Only very pragmatic and very specific issues such as the, the, the climate change emergency and some of the bigger social crises that we have faced around migration, et cetera, have opened the eyes of other spheres of government beyond the local one to the important role that municipalities, cities of all sizes, territories, they need to play. So my proposal as facilitator, as technical representative of this movement is to focus on the practice. If they want to see practice, let us give them practice. And the practice is you need local service delivery to work well. And that is what needs to give us the space at the table for the definition of service delivery in general and of policies at global level that will affect the type of resources that we attach to those service to those service delivery. But this disconnect in terms of what type of a sphere of government we are and the role that we can play internationally. And so the access that we should have to the capital market is very, very deeply rooted. And until the multilateral system uh, goes through a thorough reform, where you have a more of a polycentric type of participation of different stakeholders, including the local sphere of government, it will be very hard to change. So we're trying to change things by doing differently and hopefully convince the capital market that actually if they want transformative action to happen, they will need to change the place where financing is put to use.
Right. One of the arguments that we're using is this idea about an imperative of decentralization in the sense that if, if governments want to meet their national development targets, particularly with regard to the climate emergency, then logically that requires the delivery of infrastructure and services that are more efficiently done by local governments. I mean, if one asks the question, you know, is Bangladesh climate resilient or is the United States climate resilient? It's difficult to answer that question. But if one was to say, is New York climate resilient? Is Dhaka climate resilient? And then you have a unit of action, a unit of mobilization, a unit of measurement, a unit of government that you can actually say, right, let's get an investment proposal. Let's get a plan to make this city climate resilient or to make this district climate yeah. resilient. So it's it's actually the, it's the area of mobilization. It's the unit of measurement and unit of action that is logical if one wants to address some of these global challenges such as climate change. Yes, and the question that you asked is, how do you make New York or how do you make Buenos Aires climate resilient? That becomes even more apparent because the actions that you will need to undertake are part of the local system that will need to connect to the national one, but not the other way around. I mean, if you, you can have a national plan, but you need to start with implementation at, at local level and by definition of the action at the local level. So you are absolutely right. And our aim is to, to have a conversation which is not about shifting responsibilities, but about actually financing yeah. the existing responsibilities and putting the right financing in the right place. Our feeling is that a lot of the existing competencies are not uh, sufficiently financed. We are not even starting to talk about the additional competencies that would be needed at local level. Even the ones that already exist suffer from an incredible finance deficit. And in many cases, it's not even about a new investment, but about shifting where the investments are made to start with. There is also another issue, which, I mean, you work a lot with, and this is also a part that our coalition is trying to push through. It is the, it's not about the access to international money, but it's also about the capacity to uh, to generate your the resources within the cities as well, eh? about the, the capacity to charge for service delivery that will feed back into the service delivery of the city and the territories. That type of revenue is, is extremely important as well. And unfortunately, in many parts of the world, this is completely lacking. There is no capacity to do this. Even when they have the competencies, there is no capacity to collect. So that's another issue that we need to address. And often, a small injection of outside capital can be extremely important to, to make this happen and, and to make a difference. Sometimes it's very frustrating to hear these big numbers we hear about, about the five to seven trillion per year that we would need to invest in this new urban era to make development happen because uh, we feel that at local level, with very small amount, we could actually trigger the generation of investment, which would be extremely relevant. But it's, it's not happening now because because we are not having the discussion about the the kind of role 
that uh, local governments could be playing in development. So the space of the discussion is wrong as well. So not only about not having the finance, but the notion of the role is not where it should be. And and hopefully um, conversations like this one can help us put some of these ideas through. Absolutely. And just before we finish, I'd like to touch on one more issue in respect to what you just talked about, you know, local economic development and revenue, local revenues and things. And, and that is the issue of women's economic empowerment. So that is a major issue for economists uh, these days. And you know, countries have come to the conclusion, uh, some of them, that actually if you have a women's economic empowerment policy, you boost your economy significantly because there is a lot of latent contribution there. And it's also been associated in some places with looking at the the kind of unpaid or the unregistered contribution that women are already making to economies through mm-hmm. uh, unpaid care work and other things. So this is an area that, uh, you know, we've been doing a bit of research in recently, and it's clear that if you really want to drive women's economic empowerment, then the kind of unit of measurement and unit of action, again, is actually the local government space because that's where you can bring together issues like vocational training and education together with safe streets, safe lighting, safe transport, together with care provision for children or elderly, etc., together with labor market reforms. And you can also lead in terms of investing in industries that drive women's economic empowerment. So it's another one of these areas where they offer national policy objectives, but it requires agency, it requires leadership. And if that's going to be taken forward in a meaningful way, it is often a local government that is in a position to do that. I wonder if you have any experiences of cities that have actually taken women's economic empowerment as a joined up objective and have not only achieved that objective or moved towards that objective, but also improved the economy of the city and the revenue of the city through that. Well, I think that the uh, examples that we work with and the targets that that we are looking at are more related to overcoming inequalities and to equality in general. I think that empowerment for women needs to be a broad understanding of empowerment, not not only economic empowerment. Obviously, it, it is very relevant but it is linked with this broader work that we need to do at local level to leave no one behind. And the first address is the women. So if you if you empower women, if you ensure that they are not left behind, if you make them a high priority in the inclusion policies, if you address inequality from a broader perspective, then you will have both empowered women and an empowered uh, economy with all the players uh, behind. So this is the way that we are trying to tackle the issue. I think it is extremely important indeed to have a a national understanding of this, but you will not be able to address it unless you put sufficient resources in inclusion policies at at local level. Inclusion policies for us are becoming, I think, the next highest priority next to uh, accountable institutions and, and strong institutions. I 
think local governments all around the world need to tackle inequality. Um, our economy is failing because equality is not part of the question, actually. So for us, it goes beyond the women aspect, but I agree very much that it's intrinsically linked and you cannot understand the one without the other. The issue of unpaid work and our slow transformation from only production and consumption-driven societies to more creative and caring societies is then the next big issue that we need to address. So this discussion for us is a little bit more qualitative than quantitative. Eh? Uh, we, we wouldn't want to see the issue of women empowerment linked only with the traditional economic growth kind of, of discussion that we have had until now. I think we need to link it with other things. And in fact, I think it is positive that we are starting to quantify the economic contribution of many of the women that are doing unpaid work. It's extremely important, yes. But I think we need to add a plus to that because the value of, of that action might be higher than the quantification of the uh, classical or traditional economic uh, contribution. So that's where we are. As you can see, that is further than the traditional discussion on quantifying the possibility of women going back to the work floor or the ownership of land by women, which is extremely important. Property is a very important issue. But I think it is time for us to look even further in, in other type of economical models and economical models that are linked with social economy will be very, very important for us in the future. That is the type of discussion that we want to pioneer. I think the more classical financial institutions are already busy with with the notion of economic empowerment. If you ask me, we might already be dealing with something that, even if not a reality, it's a concept that is obsolete for the kind of transformation that we need to look at. Yeah, that's a great answer. And you know, it, it's another example of how cities, through their you know collective challenge and collective wisdom, are ahead of the curve in thinking about these development challenges because they're really facing them uh, head on. And as you mentioned, you know, and I've noticed this myself, that once you become a mayor or once you become a councillor, these issues of inequality and things, they're visible in your city and whatever your political viewpoint. And that's another yeah. point we haven't touched on. UCLG includes cities from all over the world with, with continually changing mandates and political composition. There are these uh -huh. key issues that they deal with. And, and that's where the city's network is really a, a real place where the solutions can be found. I'd just like to take a little bit further your answer. It was so interesting and, and touch on a couple of other issues. One is migration. And the other one is automation. So you're having cities dealing with, as you mentioned, inequality, uh, migration, and also automation. So increasing mm -hmm. in cases unemployment. So there's a lot of questions about this, you know, universal basic income and these type of operations. And again, cities will be at the forefront of actually dealing with these challenges. So, I mean, we're finishing in, in a few moments, but any thoughts from you on migration and even automation and uh, universal basic income and how they relate to cities? Yeah, I think they are two significantly different issues. I think the type of future 
sustainability model that that we look at are models that are very much based on human rights and and the right to the city and that implies uh, by definition that everybody should have their rightful place and their basic needs covered uh, when they arrive at a place and they automatically become neighbors and you might have differentiated access, but certainly your basic needs need to be covered. We need to take into account uh, borders, but the reality is that cities do not have borders. And so we hope in the future we will be able to contribute uh, from those perspectives in the international discussion. We all have seen our uh, current dealing of migration is not really working and we don't see necessarily as a movement migration as a crisis issue or as a problem. We do realize, however, that there are certain parts of the world where obviously uh, local governments are under stress and the lives of a lot of people um, are, are suffering because we cannot respond in an adequate manner. But our perspective is one, is one of inclusion and changing the narrative on, on, on the role that all spheres of government need to play to allow for movement of people. Uh, people, uh, people need to be allowed to, to move and to be protected. And there needs to be a difference between uh, migration and refugees. And, and those are things that are not only linked with the future of our economies, but rather with the future of, of our societies. We all want to live in a world where, where human rights are protected. The issue of, of how uh, new technologies and, and the robotics, uh, the fourth industrial revolution is, is impacting uh, our day-to-day life is very much linked with what I described before, the need to start to think of our transition uh, equally as we need to think uh, about an ecological transition and we need to change the way that we relate to the planet. We will need to change the way that our economies relate to production. <laughs> our economies can no longer be based on production of goods that we consume only, um, but it, it probably uh, we need to think of societies where economy is more based around the care for each other, taking care of each other. And, and creativity is a very important part of this. And so how we underpay those in our society that have caring jobs from nurses to people that stay back home to take care of their grandma or, or, or parents or sick children is, is a, um, I think it's a model that is no longer acceptable. And, and we will need to think about that transition because cities have for a very big part a, a responsibility to answer uh, to, to those needs. So we want to contribute to, to that discussion. In most of our cities, we no longer have the factories that we used to have, right? <laughs> and that were responsible for a lot of the pollution. They, they no longer exist in the global north. Eh? They, they, they have transitioned to, to another part of the, of the planet. I think as a global community, we need to undertake this discussion and not see automatization and, and new technologies 
as the loss of jobs, uh, but as the transformation of the jobs. And I'm probably a stop thinking about the currencies that we think of now as the only currencies that we can have in the transitional um, economy. I mean, the, the, some of my membership is starting to think also about the SDG currency even. Eh? So, so yeah, uh, it's, it's our role to be ahead of the curve. Um, it's a long way to get to get to the right answers, but it's, it's for me, it's very encouraging to know that there are many leaders, political leaders, that are thinking in these terms. And it doesn't matter their political color or the part of the world that they come from. Um, they are all putting their heads together to, to see how they can guarantee a future for the next generations and good livelihoods for those of us that are still around. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that that's a very compelling case that I think you've made over this conversation that really the development challenge and the development solutions and even the development debate, you know, people need to start looking at the cities and seeing development finance and local government finance as one and the same thing. I mean, some practical examples, you know, you mentioned migration. So what has happened in many cities around the world is that irrespective of the global politics, as you've pointed out, the migrants are a reality and cities find that, yes. you know, issuing uh, ID cards, city ID cards actually helps mm-hmm. and it helps in the revenue because then people can work and they can pay local taxes and they can be identified. It helps in a variety of ways. So you know, cities are issuing ID cards irrespective of the immigration status. We haven't even talked about about the whole issue of informal economy, which plays such a very important role in many of the cities that you and I work with. Eh? I mean, informal economy is a very important part of the real economy of our cities, both in the global north and the global south, but in particular the global south. So I think I think these are the kinds of discussions that we certainly need to have, and the local financing and, and the financing of, of of service delivery needs to take that also into account. Eh? Informal economy, informal settlement. How do you deal with those very real issues, which are in many cases the the backbone for the survival of many people that have been left behind by by the traditional uh, system? I think unless we change uh, the way that we are looking at financing and we root it more locally, we will not be able to address uh, those that uh, that are left behind by the current model. Yes, exactly. We're coming to the end of the conversation, but I feel it's only just getting warmed up. It's interesting. You know, we... <laughs> We, we spoke to Jean-Pierre Mbassi from the Africa chapter of uh, UCLG, and he was pointing out something that you've also alluded to in terms of informal economy, and that whereas some cities, their urbanization was uh, parallel to their industrialization. So the form of the city reflected the form of the finance, and, and it reflected you know this industrial form of finance. Other cities, their urbanization was funded by you know a strong central state an emperor or some some imperial uh-huh. system like you know paris and other other places where there's a colonial administration or or a strong central government that basically paid for the city but now what you're seeing is urbanization at increasing rates but urbanization the form of the financing is still informal and there is not the uh, industrialization alongside it uh, and the 
income uh, generating sectors are import export or real estate uh, maybe commodity exports but not necessarily income generating sectors that are associated with the city as, as such in the way that the industrialization is so how that how that will play out how cities will urbanize extremely rapidly and not industrialize uh, this is a major issue for a lot of cities in the global south as you as, as you point out and i think um what we're really saying in this conversation is that, uh, as we mentioned earlier, that you know development finance and local government finance need to come together. The, the local government finance should no longer be seen as a niche area for nerds, for policy wonks. It should be mm-hmm. center stage in financing the SDGs and financing the Paris Agreement. And if you want the solutions, you talk to the mayors. Uh, not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think that's what we're saying. Well, I think at least at least they need to be at the table, David. Yes. I mean, they might not always have the solution, but they need to be at the table. Certainly, I, I very much, I very much agree with that. Right. So thank you very much indeed. This has been a really nice way to end the first season of this series. And we'll start series two uh, next week, where we will actually be trying to talk to some of these mayors and others about how they are taking forward some of these uh, solutions. But before we close, we always ask um, the guests a couple of questions, binary questions that they have to um, give an answer whether they like it or not. And Mm -hmm. um, the first question I'd like to ask you, Emilia, is... Well, let me ask you this. What is your favorite uh, city in the world and why? And you cannot uh, provide the city you are living in right now or the city you are from. It has to be another one. <laughs> that's, wow. That's a very, that's a very difficult, it's, it's a very difficult question to, to answer. I, I would say Rome. And why? Uh, Rome is, is signifies for me the evolution of our civilization, of a lot of the values and beliefs, and the coming together of, of many different cultures, the history and, and, and the modern world, the challenges and the successes, but above all, our capacity to create. I adore Rome. <laughs> okay, no, that's very clear. And I guess the next question is, if you had a choice, would you prefer to take a bus to work or a, a subway or a car, walk or cycle? Well, um, public mass transport, for sure. Um, my choice is walking. Uh, I love I love to walk. Okay. No, that's very clear. Thank you so much, Emilia. And uh, looking forward to uh, touching base with you on most of these issues uh, in the coming weeks. It was really great uh, talking to you. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was actually very, I mean, it's a lot of food for thought. I do feel at the end we were getting somewhere and we kind of ran out of time. No, absolutely. These kind of conversations are never long enough, and uh, we and we should uh, have them more often. Uh, some of the conferences that we have could be better devoted to having a more of an open conversation like like this one. But I am truly grateful for the opportunity. Talk to you soon again. Absolutely. Talk to you soon again. All the best, Emilia. Have a great day. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode. This is Capital Locust, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Thanks for listening. See you next week.